WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. The nasal cavity is the only area in the body where your nervous system is exposed to the environment. Today we're here talking to Kylie Smith about her research on using insulin to treat Alzheimer's disease. Hi guys, thanks so much for having me. My name is Kylie Smith. I'm starting my fourth year as a PhD student in the biomedical engineering department at MSU. And like Chelsea mentioned, my research is focused on a pathway in our body that allows you to go directly from your nose to your brain and how we can use that to treat and monitor brain diseases like Alzheimer's disease, for example. I would like a little more clarification. How does it affect the brain specifically? We understand that Alzheimer's affects the brain like with memory, but an increase or decrease of insulin affect if people are going to have Alzheimer's. What a lot of people don't realize is that Alzheimer's disease and diabetes have a lot of overlapping symptoms. And so some scientists have even started calling Alzheimer's disease type 3 diabetes just because of all the commonalities. And one thing that these two diseases share in common is insulin resistance in the brain. Or in other words, insulin isn't doing the job that it normally would do in the brain, which leads to some of these symptoms that are well known in Alzheimer's disease, like trouble thinking, remembering, navigating complex tasks that require a lot of your brain, things like this. So if we're able to address some of the challenges with insulin performance in the brain with Alzheimer's, that also might help to impact diabetes as well. When people hear insulin, they normally associate that with the disease known as diabetes. What makes insulin a nice candidate for treating Alzheimer's? What an interesting question, Chelsea. I'm not sure that anybody has looked at the role of our own insulin signaling when we're considered healthy and whether or not that changes over time in folks that go on to develop Alzheimer's disease. But there has been a considerable amount of research into sort of the flip of your question, which is, do the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease reverse if you supply additional insulin to Alzheimer's patients? And the answer to that is yes. What has sort of spurred this realm of research? And so that's where my research is founded on, is trying to look at insulin delivery to Alzheimer's patients through the nasal cavity, how that helps to alleviate cognitive symptoms, and how we can do this better so that it translates to a treatment that Alzheimer's patients can use early in life and hopefully minimize the progression of their symptoms. Something that we do know about insulin is that if we're able to get it to the brain of an Alzheimer's disease patient, it does have neuroprotective effects. So in addition to all of the other jobs that insulin partakes in the brain, it also protects us from toxic proteins that accumulate in our brain for neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. So we do know that if we're able to get additional insulin to the brain of Alzheimer's patients, it has a number of really great effects, including helping them to retain information better, which is perhaps one of the most difficult symptoms for Alzheimer's patients and their families. Just the idea of having insulin delivered through my nasal cavity makes me think about all the COVID tests that people have had to get throughout this year. When it comes to your insulin studies, are you working with live cells or are you working with an actual animal? So the studies we're doing are in live animals. We're actually working with non-human primates right now because they are the best model of a real person. 
And so like I mentioned, the research that we're doing is born out of real studies with real humans who have Alzheimer's disease, who have shown that insulin is a successful treatment for the symptoms. However, in these clinical trials, what they're finding out is that not every device that is used to deliver insulin to the nasal cavity is successful. And so what we're testing is what does successful delivery to the site of action or the location that we want insulin to be delivered to for it to have an impact on your brain? What does that look like? How do we achieve it? And most importantly, what obstacles are preventing us from achieving that with every person who gets insulin treatment in their nasal cavity? And so non-human primates have a nasal cavity that is most similar to humans in terms of the types of animal models that we do research with. And so we're working with non-human primates direct to deliver radioactive insulin to their brains through their nasal cavity that we can then track the insulin using specialized cameras. So all of the work that we've done so far is done in animals. Now, whenever people hear the word radioactive, they get a little bit nervous. Can you tell us more about it and if it's safe for the primates? Absolutely. You're exactly right that the public has preconceived notions about what radioactivity is, if it's dangerous. But what they don't realize is that we are actually getting exposure to radioactivity every day as we're living our normal lives. And that a certain amount of exposure to that is perfectly safe as far as we know. Not only that, but many people throughout their lives will go on to get certain types of scans that require radioactive tracers to be injected into their body. And you might need several of those scans over the course of your life. So for these types of techniques, what we're doing is injecting very, very small amounts of radioactivity that are attached to molecules or proteins or the worker bees of our body that are doing all of the action inside of our cells. And these proteins get cleared quickly. And so the hope is that for radioactive tracers, we're delivering something that's going to go directly to the site that it needs to go to for us to get the data that we need, and then otherwise clear from the body very quickly so that we're not increasing exposure to important things like our organs that we want to protect. So with that being said, the amount that we are giving to the animals is very, very small, and we don't expect that it will have any major impact on animal health such that they would be able to go on to get more scans if they wanted to throughout their lifetime. Thanks for making that distinction clear there, Kylie. While there are harmful levels of radiation that can exist in different environments, radiation can actually have a lot of benefits, like the ones you just described, and allowing us to perform diagnostics. Now let's take a step back and get to the delivery portion of the insulin again. When you're delivering the insulin in the nasal cavity, how are you going about it? For example, there are allergy sprays out there, or is it more of an injection in the nasal cavity? So there are a lot of devices out on the market that people can use to deliver substances to their nose. But you might imagine that not all of them are created equally. For example, many of the types of devices that we think about when we think about nasal sprays, like for allergies or to clear your sinuses, actually deliver very far from the site that we're looking to deliver, a lot closer to your nostrils than to your brain. And so those are actually not good candidates for our study. And there's a lot of development going on around devices which do reach our site of interest, which is all the way at the tippy top of your nasal cavity in a region called the olfactory epithelium. Now, this site is really difficult to target because this site is really difficult to target because we have a lot of fleshy shelves, you might imagine. 
So these are flat surfaces that protrude or targeting this region is really difficult because to reach it, first you have to pass through many small, narrow passageways that most drugs or treatments that we try to deliver will get stopped by. You can sort of think of them like a parking block or like a do not cross this road sign. They're meant to stop things from reaching this region because if something harmful gets inhaled in your nose, it could have access to your brain if it gets deposited at this site. So we need specialized devices that are able to help our drug pass through these small passageways. Now, devices that do this well are far and few between. And for that reason, they can be really expensive. And so for the clinical trials that we've been following, they've been using a particular type of nebulizer. Many people are familiar with nebulizers. We use them really regularly at home or at the hospital for breathing treatment. But it's something that people are using for this as well, where they are creating an aerosol of insulin and having people inhale this through their nostrils with the intention of reaching our target site at the olfactory epithelium. However, they have used their understanding of aerosol physics and the dynamics within the nasal cavity to better project this aerosol all the way to the tippy top of your nasal cavity at this region called the olfactory epithelium. However, this is thousands and thousands of dollars for a single device, and our research is interested in making access to this a little bit easier. And so we've been testing commercial nebulizers, one that you might buy for $100 from an online medical and we're trying to look at delivering this insulin, which has been radio-labeled or has a radioactive atom attached to it, to deliver aerosol to the olfactory epithelium. We're finding a lot of challenges with doing this, so we're also looking at other methods to get the data that we're interested in getting to answer our questions about transfer to the brain. And so now we're also looking at just dropping droplets into the nasal cavity just above our site of interest, using tools which allow us to scoot right by these passageways and right through these passageways in the primate in a way that's safe and confirms that we're delivering insulin right to the right location. When we translate this to humans, hopefully in the future, we wouldn't want to insert something long and possibly painful into a human's nose. And so we do hope that using this dropwise approach, we can answer some questions about whether insulin is transferred to the brain how we need it to be, if it's deposited in the right location. In the future, we do hope to translate our understanding of this delivery approach back to aerosol or something non-invasive that can be used with humans. Now, with these aerosol methods, do you 3D print the delivery system or do you use something that has already been made? Because I'm also thinking about like FDA approval or even a patent review of how you might have to go through different hoops in order to get this technology approved. So actually, that's part of the reason that we're looking to use already established devices to minimize the amount of time that it takes to get a working solution to our patients. However, we're creating radioactive aerosol, right? Most nebulizers are not required to keep all of their aerosol perfectly contained. It's generally not dangerous if there's any leakage. However, that's not the case when we're working with radioactive aerosol. All of the aerosol needs to be contained, leakage needs to be minimized, and so we have to take really careful care to make sure that that happens. So use these existing devices which are not ready for radioactive material. What we do is we do 3D print covers, adapters, different pieces that make it so that this nebulizer is safe to be used for radioactive aerosol. And so that does require quite a bit of 3D printing. 
We also use 3D printing in this project to create a model of the nasal cavity of the primate. And we use that to do some pilot testing very early on to see if we were delivering aerosol to the right location with our nebulizer. So those are two places where we've actually used 3D printing, and it has been so helpful. We couldn't have done it without that tool. So in this interview, we've covered how you're studying the movement of insulin through the primates using these radioactive tracers. But what are the other ways that you're testing the impact of the insulin on the brain and the behavior of the primates? Are you performing behavior analysis, for example? So this is sort of a unique situation where we're working backwards from the impact of insulin in the brain. Early studies done in this topic for the impact of insulin in Alzheimer's patients was actually just a behavioral study. They delivered insulin to Alzheimer's patients' brain through the nasal cavity using a nebulizer, and then they tested the behavioral output judged by their performance on tasks related to your brain's function. And so, for example, one that you may have heard of is called the delayed recall task. And in this task, they give a list of words to volunteers, wait some time, and then ask the volunteers to remember all of the words from before. And so they found that Alzheimer's patients that did have this additional insulin delivered improved better on that. And they continued with behavioral studies for this type of treatment for Alzheimer's patients and found that it extended beyond performance on the delayed recall task, but to other areas of their life as well. They could take care of themselves better. Um, their relationships were improved, things like that. And so we know that this treatment works, but what we don't know is why it doesn't work all the time. Instead of looking at the behavioral impact of insulin, we're actually just looking at the transfer of insulin to the brain. When it doesn't work, is it because it's not reaching the target site? Is it because the device used actually changes the insulin somehow, and then that way it can't work in the brain? Or is there something else altogether? Since we already know that this treatment does work in humans if we're able to deliver enough of the insulin to the brain, and we do know that that's the case for those studies because they sampled the fluid that the brain sits in, and they did find that insulin levels were increased. And we're just looking at the how of it. Where is the insulin going? Is it getting stuck on anything? Is it actually not a delivery problem? Is it the solution that the insulin is in is not ideal? Questions like that. Right now, we're not looking at behavioral studies. It's possible that we might do that in the future if it's warranted, but the data is already there that it does have really great behavioral impacts, and so we're running with that. Now, some people may not know that the brain is protected by something called the blood-brain barrier. With this delivery system, would it overcome that blood-brain barrier, where it's basically like a barrier that's protecting the brain? And another question I have is, can you do another method of delivery that's not through the nose? With nose-to-brain delivery, part of why this is so exciting is because it's suspected to just completely bypass the blood-brain barrier. You can think of the nose-to-brain delivery pathway sort of as a highway that juts right through town where other delivery pathways might need to bumble through traffic, take the side roads, make sure that it goes through the right checkpoints for our body so that we can make sure it's safe or not for our brain. The nose-to-brain pathway is the highway that cuts right through that. It does not have to stop at the checkpoint. And that's part of what makes it so exciting because it really opens up what we can deliver to the brain. Now, for other people who already take additional insulin, diabetics, for example, it's really, really important that those levels of insulin are tightly controlled for the patient's health. This is true for diabetics, but also for people who are not diabetic. 
we don't want to introduce insulin in the body where it's not needed because that can create a host of problems. And so with nose to brain delivery, not only are we bypassing the blood brain barrier, but largely we also see that we're not relying on the blood of our body, which is the circulation system of our body, to deliver insulin to the brain. And what that means is that we don't have to worry about altered levels of insulin elsewhere in the body either. We're just delivering insulin to the brain. We don't have to worry about causing trouble with somebody's energy utilization in their body that could have dramatic health effects. And so that's in large part the attraction of this delivery pathway system. That's why we're interested in it, definitely. I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things I've been thinking about is how too much insulin could negatively impact the body as well as the way that the insulin is introduced into the body. Once you've finalized the characterization of the delivery of the insulin into the nasal cavity, what are some of the next steps? Are you playing around with concentrations of insulin or are you looking at different delivery times for the insulin? Yeah, that's where we're going to be next. It's good to be thinking about these kinds of things. I think there are two questions that are really pressing next steps for this research. First of all, we need insulin to get to the brain after we place it at the site that we need. And that might sound trivial, but actually the environment of the cells in that area plays a large role in whether or not insulin can make it to the brain. And so we're going to be looking at changing the liquid that the insulin is delivered in and test whether or not that improves the quantity or the amount of insulin that makes it to the brain from that site in the nasal cavity. And there are some different ways that we can do that, like altering the pH of the solution. We can add more salts so that it's hypertonic. And we can also add other molecules to the solution that help insulin penetrate or move through the cells that act as a barrier to that region. Those are some different avenues that we can take to try and improve the amount of insulin that did make it into the nasal cavity site on its way to the brain. But once it makes it to the brain, how do we confirm that it's doing what we want? Well, what we would like to see is that insulin travels to insulin receptors, which allow insulin to take action in the brain. And these are all over the brain, but they're in specific locations that we know about. And so the next step would be to make sure that insulin that does make it to the brain is binding or connecting to these insulin receptors so that they can have their action in the brain, which then in turn helps Alzheimer's patients with their symptoms. We can tell if this is working better by quantifying exactly how much insulin is in each location. Or in other words, we can count exactly how many insulin molecules are in each location. And so it makes it really easy for us to know if we're doing better or doing worse in our goal of getting insulin to the brain. Because it's radioactive and because we have specialized cameras that allow us to detect this radioactivity, we can then use our understanding of radioactivity in mathematics to count exactly how many insulin molecules we expect to be there. And in that way, we can start to ask these questions about, well... What material in the liquid solution with insulin actually does lead to more insulin getting to the brain? Or how many of the insulin molecules that made it to the brain traveled to the site where we know that insulin receptors are? And so that's one of the bonuses about working with radioactivity is that we can directly quantify how many insulin molecules are there so that we can start to improve this in future, future iterations of this. This sounds like a really good option for people who are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. However, people who have a disease can also have comorbidities or other diseases. For example, 
What happens if someone has Alzheimer's, but also something like diabetes? Would people with other diseases or comorbidities have side effects, or would they have a negative effect whenever this insulin is being delivered? That's a great question about comorbidity. I truthfully don't know the answer, but to address your question of could there be dangerous side effects, I will say that even in otherwise healthy patients, insulin has a beneficial effect when administered to the brain. And so in healthy volunteers, they did these types of studies where they deliver insulin to the brain and saw that this also helped improve their performance on tasks related to thinking. Because insulin is so tightly controlled by the body, I think that there is a lot of hesitance to deliver insulin to people who might be susceptible to dangerous side effects. And so I think that this hesitance is then converted to a lot of careful decision-making in who receives these insulin doses or who might be a better candidate for a different type of treatment. And so while I don't know about comorbidities where additional insulin might be dangerous, I do know that it's something that is of high concern in this field and that if there were a risk, this would be closely followed and perhaps other treatments would be considered. As we near the end of our interview, I have to ask, what has been your favorite experience when it comes to working with the primates? You know, I wish I could. So Michigan State does not do primate research, and so we actually work with a third-party research group to get this research done. They have a fantastic animal handling team who oversees the well-being and interactions with these primates. I'm just the scientist who comes in and delivers the radioactive insulin to their nose. And so I actually don't interact with them very much. The animals are anesthetized, or in other words, the animals have been put to sleep temporarily under anesthesia by the time that I see them. And so they're mostly sleeping. And likewise, they're only slowly waking up when I'm leaving this location for the research. But what I can say is that it is so neat to see just how similar they are to us. I can't help but think of myself when I look at them and see their little legs and their little knees. They're really very sweet looking lying there, and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to work with them. I do hear, though, that they can be quite loud, and a couple of times I've actually walked past the room, or I've actually walked past the area of the facility in which they live, and something kind of funny happens when they hear people walking by nearby. They get real loud because that could mean snack time or meal time. And so they definitely let you know. And that's been one of my only interactions with them while they're awake, which is pretty impressive. I know I like snacks, and I know I'd shout for snacks, so that's something that we have in common. It makes sense that they're anesthetized so that they're not distressed during this experiment. However, it is unfortunate that you haven't been able to interact with them. I do completely understand you. I'm someone who loves snacking and mealtime, too. Thanks a lot for talking to us today, Kylie, about your research, and we look forward to hearing in the future about how your trials go. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science. 